Welcome to the Bradenville Church of Christ podcast. We are a family of believers striving to be the first century church in the 21st century. We're located at 285 Church Street in Bradenville, Missouri. Please join us for Bible study Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. with worship to follow at 11 a.m. Wednesday night Bible study is at 7 p.m. Now, please enjoy our lesson. We've been talking about the family for the last several weeks. And we've talked about God's pattern for the family. We've talked about God's pattern of marriage. And we've talked about the role of the man in the family. We've talked about the role of the woman in the family. We talked about children. We talked about siblings. And we talked about grandparents. And we talked about situations in which we might find ourselves as a single parent or in, in various situations and roles that we might have in the family. Last week we talked about what historically has probably been the greatest threat against the family. And that, that was the topic of divorce. This week we're going to talk about some additional threats to the family. Next week we're going to wrap up our series on the family with one I think that's pretty interesting. I, th- I hope you'll enjoy anyway. Um, just to kind of bring the, the series of the family to an end, but also to bring 2019 to an end. And as we move into 2020, we're going to transition into some, some other lessons related to personal evangelism and the, and the words of Jesus. But today we're going to talk about... Um, I'm going to talk about some threats that uh, are growing uh, in the world and in particularly in our country against the family and w- that we need to be aware of. And in particular, we want to, we want to be aware of these because they are a, uh, they're a push to redefine marriage and to, to recapture it in a, in a new perspective. And we've got to keep our feet firmly planted in God's Word when these issues come up. Because we, we will be dealing with these. If you haven't dealt with this on a personal level in your family, you will be dealing with this. We will be dealing with this in the future as this becomes more prevalent because this is the path that, that we are headed down right now. I'll give you some hope at the end, though. Don't, don't lose heart as we go through this lesson. But I will tell you up front, this lesson is going to be difficult for us. It's going to be very challenging because it's going to deal with some difficult topics. The, the ideas and the, and the concepts that these, that these um, threats bring up are difficult to talk about in a, a congregation like this where we have young people and we have, we have um, sensitive ears, you might say, to some of these topics. And so we're going to handle these in a very gingerly manner. But I want us to talk about them no less because they're important for us and particularly for our, for our young people who are getting to an age where they're thinking about dating or think, even thinking about getting married. We need them to understand that this is, these are things that God has spoken about and that we need to be aware of as well. And so to begin this discussion about these additional threats, we're going to go back to almost to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 4. And you read in Genesis chapter 4 about a man named Lamech. Lamech was a descendant of Cain. Of course, you remember Cain was the one who killed his brother Abel uh, because of some, his jealousy over the sacrifice that he offered and the fact that God was not, uh, did not have uh, respect for Cain's sacrifice. Well, Lamech was a great-great-great-great-grandson, I believe i got enough greats in there, of, of Cain. And, and we're going to see that he's going to do something that nobody else has done, at least in recorded history or in the Bible we, we don't see this. And that's, it's found down in verse 19 when it says, Then Lamech took for himself two wives. Now pause right there for a second. Does anything sound unusual about that from anything that we've read so far? You go back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, and you remember that God laid down a pattern for the family. 
and particularly for marriage. The pattern for marriage is one man, one, warm jo one woman joined by God for life. And what you see Lamech doing here is Lamech's taken that, that principle of God and he's, he's tweaked it now. Now I can't tell you why he felt compelled to take two wives. But what you're going to see happen throughout the rest of, of mankind's history is you're going to see this idea of bigamy or polygamy, as the, the technical term might be called, grow and become more prevalent. And it's going to be something that's going to plague families. You read through the Old Testament, and it doesn't take very long to see that a man with multiple wives is going to have problems in his family. You read about Abraham. Now he had a wife named Sarah, and he had a concubine named Hagar, and that caused problems in the family. And you read on forward to about a man named David who had multiple wives, and he had problems in his family. And you read about Solomon who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he had problems in his family. And what we see is that polygamy and polygamy is a problem for the family. It's a threat against the family. And it's because of that principle that God put into mankind, that God instilled into mankind, created into mankind from the beginning, and this principle of two become one. You remember when God created man, and then he created woman, and he brought woman to man, and you remember Adam makes that statement, she is now bone of my bone, and she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the Bible then says there that they would become one flesh. And so there's an intimacy and there's a closeness of marriage that happens between a man and a woman, that you can't share amongst people. It's, it's not, that's not the way God created us to be. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus makes this same, he goes back to this Genesis reference when he talks about the fact that in the beginning God made them male and female, and he caused this marriage to happen the way that he would have it to be because of his design for mankind. Verse 4 of Matthew 19 says, Have you not read he made them in the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so on a physical level, on an emotional level, on a mental level, and even on a spiritual level, there is a union between a man and a wife that is sacred and precious and holy and bound together by God. And then you try to take a third person and shove them into that equation and see how it works out. In fact, what God's going to say is it doesn't work out. It's contrary to His principle. Now, Paul deals with this over in 1 Corinthians. There was a question that the Corinthians have asked. And we, we used this passage a couple of weeks ago in our discussion of, of marriage. But he makes a point here that I think it's interesting for us to, to, to note. The Corinthians had asked a question, and Paul's answering the question, now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Again, I don't know exactly what, he's, what, what their question was, but Paul's going to make a point that there's a, if a man could live celibate through his life, that would probably be a good thing for him spiritually. But we're not created that way by God. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, if you were just to read through this chapter, you might blow through that passage and, and go on down to the maybe the more meaty parts of his discussion. But the point we want to draw from this is, by the time you come to the New Testament, Jesus is still teaching that the two shall become one flesh. 
Paul's making the point by inspiration that a man should have his own wife and that a wife should have her own husband. And you notice they're, they're not talking about it from the plural standpoint. That a husband should have his own wives and a wife should have her own husbands. This is a one-to-one ratio here that we're talking about. And so it's important that we, that we kind of get this nailed down in our heads because this isn't just a Bible times issue. Um, if you pay attention to the news, if you pay attention to the, the things that are going on in our country, this is beginning to be challenged. There are certain religious groups to, that throughout their history have practiced this. You go out of the places in the world and this is common. Polygamy is a common practice in the world of Islam. And there are religious groups in this country who would practice this if it weren't illegal in this country. And so you're going to see push. I'm, just, I'm not a prophet and I didn't sleep at a Holiday Inn last night, but I'm going to tell you there's going to be a push in this country to redefine marriage as being more than two people. And so we need to have our feet firmly planted on the ground in God's Word and what, this, what marriage is. One man, one woman joined by God for life. Now the pendulum sometimes swings in the completely opposite direction sometimes. And this is not new either. But it's becoming more prevalent in our country. You remember, when I think it was last week when I was talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that the divorce rates in this country are on the decline. And on first blush you might think, well that's a good thing. And it is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But one of the reasons that divorce is on the decline in this country is because marriage is on the decline. And so what we are beginning to see more prevalent, and again, this is not new. This has happened from the beginning of time as well. You see people who just choose to live together to cohabitate, but they're not married. And this is a challenge as well. Because again, you go back to the beginning and you remember that God brought men and women together for some specific reasons. One of those is to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. God created the family and in, in he intentionally created the institution of marriage to be the institution in which children would be brought into the world. And so the intimate relationship of marriage is vitally important to God. And yet you see people who will abandon the, the vows, abandon the, the commitment to each other in order to enjoy the pleasures that, uh, that might come from marriage. And so Colton read for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 13 and the Hebrew writer here makes the point that marriage is honorable among all that's God's principle on marriage it's honorable among all and so you can go through history you can go through time you can you can do anthropological studies of mankind throughout history and you're gonna find almost every single every civilization that's ever existed has had some form of a legal commitment expressed between, between men and women, some form of marriage. But now that's becoming old-fashioned, right? Marriage is an old convention that has no place in society today. And so people are then just abandoning it. And the Bible makes a point here. It says, The marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. And so it's talking there about the intimacy of marriage, how that in, in marriage the sexual relationship is undefiled it's it's actually holy before God but God makes the statement here through the uh, inspired writer he says but the 
fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so he's talking here then about sexual immorality. Those sexual experiences that happen outside the bonds of marriage, the Bible calls and God calls fornication. He calls them adultery in, in the case that it might involve somebody who is married to somebody else. Why does he do that though? You know, as, as, as little kids, we often want to know why, right? And that's probably one of the most troubling questions for a parent to have asked by a child or, or a grandchild is, why, 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 why? Sometimes we want to know why. And in this situation, people would look at God and say, well, he's just being arbitrary, right? He's just being, he's being difficult because he doesn't want us to have fun. He doesn't want us to enjoy life. But the Bible brings this out, and even scientific research shows this. There's a, there's a connection that happens between men and women in intimacy. There's a bond that takes place. This idea of two becoming one is not simply just a philosophical statement. It's not just something that, that we could write down on paper to say to be the truth, but it happens with hearts and minds that are knit together. And so I use this example, I think back early in our presentation of the family, but I would challenge you to do this. Take some super glue and put it on your fingers. Let it sit for about an hour, and then you try to take them apart and see what happens. There's going to be damage that's going to take place, and that's the similar situation that happens when two become one flesh. There's a bond that forms in that relationship that is broken when people part. And the challenge with living together or cohabitating or whatever whatever phrase that you want to use is that there are bonds that are joined that then can and often are broken. You look at people who've lived together and then are separated and I can tell you almost every single one of those relationships there's going to be one of the two parties that's going to be hurt. There's going to be expectations that aren't met. There's going to be implied commitments that aren't followed through on. There's going to be bills that aren't paid. There's going to be things that, that naturally happen in a marriage that are going to be broken apart. And that's just the nature of that relationship. Because it's kind of like going down to a car dealership to buy a car and not signing the contract and just driving away with it, right? Somebody's going to be upset. And so we've got to understand then that there, is, there, are, there are commitments... There are relationships, there are bonds that are made in marriage that are critical to the family that don't happen in these type of relationships. There are some people who are married, uh, you might say married legally, but they have what's called open relationships, and I, th that blows my mind. How people can, can be involved with this person over here and still be married to this person over here and how that can how that can not cause how can they can see that, that doesn't cause damage to relationships it doesn't break people down mentally and emotionally and spiritually and it even introduce physical damage into the into the relationships and so we see over in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 6 that even something that was that was prevalent has been prevalent throughout time and is even prevalent today is the idea you know of, of prostitution and and Paul deals with that he deals with this idea of prostitution and, and of harlotry and the sexual immorality that comes with that he says in chapter 6 beginning in verse 13 
Um, and I can't read that because that's Ephesians. I need to go to 1 Corinthians. Beginning about halfway through verse 13, it says, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God has raised up the Lord and will raise Him up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one. And there he's speaking not necessarily about the marriage, but he's talking about the relationship that happens in intimacy. And so it's now, you, now you're taking yourself, you're joining yourself to this harlot. But he says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. I like the way he says that. Because in other places, in speaking about sin, or in speaking about the devil, he says resist. Right? And when you think about resist, you think about putting up your hands, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fight it, right? Or um, stand fast in the Lord, resist the devil. But when it comes to sexual immorality, he uses a different term. Paul often, when he writes about it, he just says flee. And when you think about that, that means get your running shoes on and just get away from it. Don't hang around it. Don't let yourself be tempted by it. Don't stay in the same area with it. Don't I mean, get out of the same zip code. Get away from it because it's a temptation that we often cannot stand up to for the long haul because it breaks down relationships. It breaks us spiritually. It breaks us emotionally. It breaks us mentally. And so we see then that this is something that, that uh, we have to, to, to avoid. And, and, it, and because it's a threat to us and it's a threat to the family. And in Romans chapter 1, we see this as a progression this is part of the progression of sin. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is dealing, in the latter part of the chapter, he's dealing with unrighteousness that comes from turning away from God. And so he's going to make the point, when you begin to cut yourself loose from the principles of God, you're going to head down a path that is dangerous and destructive. And it begins by worshiping something besides God. When you begin to worship other things, and we think about, well, in fact, we don't practice idolatry today. People don't practice idolatry today. But do they? Is the worship of myself not idolatry? Is the worship of the things that I want, the worship of, of my lusts and desires, is that not idolatry? And so when we begin to put ourselves in, in place of God in our lives, then we're going to head down a dangerous path. And one of the things that we see happening here is uh, you're going to begin to, to commit sexual immorality Outside of marriage, notice what he says in verse uh, first. In, excuse me, in Romans chapter one, verse twenty-four. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now you think, well, he's talking here about uncleanness related to idolatry, right? But what do you hear people say when they're, when they're, when they're in a, a sexually immoral relationship? What do they say? Well, I just want to be happy, right? God just wants me to be happy. Or it makes me happy. But what we, see, what we hear in that, in that expression is that I'm willing to worship the creature rather than the creator. And one of the scary things about this passage is that God lets you go your own way. When it says God gave them over, that's not an active work of God. That's a passive. God let them go 
their own way. You heard the phrase, give them enough rope to hang themselves? That's what God allows us to do. When we, when we choose to chase sin, God's not going to put up a barrier there to stop us. He's going to teach us. He's going to instruct us. He gives us opportunity to turn away from it. But He's not going to fence us in. And so what we see here is mankind begins to, to run down that path. And when we run down that path, it's going to lead to other threats against the family. And this is going to bring us to our, to our final topic today of this idea of redefining by trying to own marriage. <clears throat> and the way, it, the, way it's being, the way it is expressed in this country is that marriage is a right. Correct? Everybody has a right to be married to who they choose. And so that's how marriage is beginning to be defined in this country. Now, that's not unique. This country is not unique because this, this, this idea is taking place around the world. But if we can say that the state defines marriage, then the state is, in essence, a reflection of us, right? It's a reflection of the society who, in a, in a democratic republic, it's a reflection of the people who put these leaders into power. In other societies, it's a reflection of their leadership or their dictator or their whatever. But it's a reflection of mankind and not God. And that's where we begin to see the trouble come in. Because whenever I choose what's up and what's down, apart from the principles of God, I'm going to fail. I can tell you, I may not like gravity, but me not liking gravity doesn't change it. It's a principle of God. It's a law of nature. And there are certain laws of nature, there are certain laws and principles that God has created that we can't just change on our own. But that, that's, the, that's the idea that we see here in that the, if we allow society to define what marriage is, we are going to eventually fail. We're going to fail the family in particular. And so the one that is dominating the frontier right now, if you, if you look at marriage as a frontier, and the one that's dominating the scene right now is the homosexual movement. Now, I can tell you that's not the only movement that's out there that, that wants to own the day. But they're the ones that, that are speaking the, the loudest right now about the redefinition of marriage. And we've seen it take place in our country. We've already moved through the state-by-state the, the state movement to now that the, the federal Supreme Court has, has said that we cannot have laws that pro prohibit people of the same sex from being married. But what does God say about that? What's God's statement about that? And I want to I want to say this in a, in a loving and kind way because the the discussion of homosexuality has the ability to put up barriers and to cause uh, cause hatred and contention to rise up. And we've got to tear those barriers down. We've got to be people who are building bridges with people to help them overcome sin in their lives. No different than any other any other sins we're going to see in this list. We've got to be people of compassion and of faith in God that he can, work, he, can, he can work changes in people's lives. He can bring about the changes in people's lives. But the first thing we've got to understand is God's view of the homosexual practice. I say it that way because God, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for all mankind. So I want to talk about the sin and not the sinner. I want to be very clear about that. But let's notice how God views the sin of homosexuality. You begin back in Genesis, and this is an old, an old practice. This is something that, that has 
that took its place as a threat against the family not long after polygamy. Genesis chapter 13, and we're going to go through this pretty quick because I've got several passages here, but I just want us to, I want us to be firmly fixed in our minds and have our feet firmly planted on the ground in relation to this, this concept. Um, the first indication we see of the sinfulness of the, of the people, the sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were committing were found in Genesis 13. And down in verse 13, uh, verse 12 says, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plains, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, it doesn't tell us what they were doing there, but I want you to notice there that what they were doing, whatever it was, was exceedingly wicked and sinful. Okay, That's the point that we're making here. Whatever they were doing was exceedingly wicked. So now you jump over to Genesis chapter 18, and you read a story about three men coming to visit Abraham. And they come, and this is where uh, they, they, they tell Abraham, listen, about a year from now, you're going to have a son. That's the son of promise that, the, that's made here. But they also, they, they revealed to Abraham that they're going to Sodom. And it's not going to end well. And you remember the negotiation that takes place there between Abraham and, and these, these men um, that were sent from God. He says, Oh man, what would you destroy the city for 50 righteous? No, no, we won't destroy the city for 50. And you remember he negotiates down. He gets it all the way down to 10. Would you destroy the city for 10 righteous? They say, no, we won't destroy the city for 10 righteous people. And then two of them go on. Two of these being the angels of the Lord. They, they, they're sent on to Sodom. And when they get there, Lot's waiting for them at the gate. And Lot, they, they say, well, we're going to sleep out in the common area. We're going to sleep out in the, in the kind of the place where the cattle are, are kept in the city. And Lot said, no, you don't understand. You can't do that. It's not safe for you to do that. And so he invites them into his home. They come and stay in his home. And later on in the day, the men of the city come, and they start knocking at the door. Um, Verse 4 of chapter 19. Now that before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. Now what some people will claim here is that these people were guilty of inhospitality. Because the, the Hebrew here is 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 sensitive in this area when it talks about knowing people there's a different ways in which you might know somebody in the Old Testament but the Bible is very clear about what their intentions were for these men they were going to abuse them sexually and that was the sin that was being that was being it wasn't the fact that they were going to just abuse them it was the fact that they were doing it in a way that was unnatural and, 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 and against the laws of nature and so the city was destroyed because of that. Both cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's the, the, the first judgment that we see of God towards the action or the sin of, of homosexuality and of also of violence in, in it. In Jude chapter 1 verse 7, 
Jude makes an interesting point about this because it's not the it's not just the violence that they were guilty of and that they were condemned for, but he makes the point that it was because of strange flesh, he says there. This is in Jude chapter 1, verse 7. He says, In Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so God has a very strong stance against the sin of homosexuality. You move forward then to Leviticus and in the giving of the law. As Moses, as God through Moses is laying out these sexual immoralities, the sins that would cause somebody to be punished or even be put to death, you've got, you've got rape and you've got adultery and you've got various, various versions of that. But one of the things he says there is if a man lay with a man like he would with a woman, he, they're both to be put to death. That was part of the old law. And then you come into the New Testament, and perhaps one of the strongest statements against the sin of homosexuality is found in Romans chapter 1. We just read there before about how um, cutting yourself loose from God leaves a person or a, or a family or a, or a society, they lead them away from God into what we might call, in this country we call the sexual revolution of the, of the 60s and 70s. But what's interesting here is you look at the history of the United States and you parallel it with Romans chapter 1 and you're going to see some of the same steps. What the sexual evolution often leads to is what you're going to find in Romans chapter 1 verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And I'm going to skip on down. Uh, actually, let's read verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God into their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And pay attention to verse 32. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. These sins, which include deceit and murder and backbiting, hating God, disobedient to parents, covetousness, maliciousness, and sexual immorality, including homosexuality, are all deserving of death. But in particular, what I want us to notice here is it's not just those who practice these things, but he also says, and those who approve of them. And that's a, that's, a, that's a threat against the family as well, right? Because we may find ourselves in situations where maybe we're not practicing homosexuality, but we may be asked to condone it. We may be asked to celebrate it. We may be asked to give up our livelihood because we don't. You know, there are people in this country who have lost their businesses because they wouldn't make a cake 
for a homosexual wedding. Or they wouldn't make shirts for a homosexual parade. And so we see then that this threat then is coming upon, not just upon people who practice these things, but it's, it's, this is something that's spreading to people who don't, it's not just, it, you, kinda, you look at the progression of tolerance to celebration to endorsement. And that's what we're progressing through right now. Again, I want to, I want to reiterate this. People who practice sexual immorality are no better or worse than any of us other sinners, right? But it's a struggle right now in a country where people want to promote that sin and to make it not to be sinful, but to be something that's to be celebrated and endorsed and even um, turned into a, 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 an ability to cause other people to suffer. But it's not just the sin of sexual hom- of uh, the sin of homosexuality that we need to understand here in relation to the family, because there is a principle of marriage that the homosexual relationship violates. You remember, you go all the way back to the beginning, and I, if I've said it once, I probably said it more than you care to hear. But I want to say it over again: God instituted marriage with one man and one woman, joined by Himself for life. And when you look at that, that equation, there's no way in this world that you can cause that equation to read one man and one man. You can, find, you can find nowhere in it one woman and one woman because that doesn't fit the principle of God's family. And you think about it, why, why would that make sense? It's because God created us in this way. And God created the family for a reason, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. You'll never find a homosexual relationship that will fulfill that that aspect of God's plan for the family. And so we see here then that it's not only in in opposition to the nature of God, but it's it's, it's in violation of the institution of God. And therefore, it's not something that we can just redefine because the state or the country or the nation says, well, we think it ought to be different. It comes from the principles of God. And as I've noted already, we're moving from tolerance to celebration to requisite endorsement. Um, This is the part of the lesson that probably makes me sadder than anything. This is not the end. The door's only been kicked open to other things that we've talked about this morning. If you look at the if you look at the horizon, you're going to see other threats to the family coming at the family, in particular at marriage. A redefinition of marriage to me not just between one man and one woman, but between multiple parties. You're going to see I predict that you will see the redefinition of marriage to eliminate any age requirements. And that's sickening to me. And there's other things that I don't even care to talk about that are going to be that could potentially be coming down the line. And, and this idea that we can just define marriage the way that the state wants to define it. 
And if that was the end of the story, I tell you what, it'd be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty disappointing. But I want to give you some perspective. I want to end this, this part of our series on the family with this perspective. God instituted marriage six days into creation. So it's been here almost as long as the world's been here. You think about what that means. It means it's durable. It means it can stand up against whatever threat Satan wants to bring at it. It's long-lasting. Satan has never found a way to kill marriage. He's never torn it down. He's never hidden it. He's never destroyed it. There are still countries around the world. Matter of fact, if you go to almost any nation in the world, I can't think of a single nation in this world that doesn't have some type of legal system that allows two people to be joined together. But even if it didn't, God still has a way for that to happen. He still has the ability to join one man and one woman together for life. And as long as this whole world keeps spinning, the family is still going to be in existence. And it's still going to thrive. And it's still going to bring truth into the world. And it's still going to bring children into the world. And it's still going to do all the things that God designed it to do. And I love that because it means that God's in control. God is still in control. We may feel like at times that this world is out of control, but God is still in control. And so that's why we need to be encouraged in this study. Next week, as I said, we're going to wrap this study up with some, uh, some, good, some good principles to, to strengthen marriage. And I'm going to have some guidance for our young people when it comes to dating because that's that's a lot of times where the family gets started right you start you start thinking about getting in the family way and so you start looking for somebody to to uh, catch I mean that's a good way of saying that and uh, I'll just make the I'll, I'll, I'll make I'll, I'll give you a predictor next week you're never going to catch a bass in a gar hole so just keep that in mind all right so we're going to talk a little bit about about what we're looking for in a spouse. And we're going to talk a little bit about how once we are married, those principles that we can use to, to guard our marriage and to keep it strong. We we'll offer invitation now to anyone who, uh, who needs to, to hear the, the, the good news of the gospel. Maybe you come to an understanding that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in your, in your studies or in your life and you know that Jesus died on the cross for you, but you haven't done what you need to do to become a Christian. Jesus told His disciples before He ascended into heaven, Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins be preached in His name to all generations beginning in Jerusalem. About ten days or so after Jesus said that, the apostles were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And you remember the Holy Spirit came upon them and they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ on that day. And there were people who heard that message and they said, Men and brethren, what do we do? And Peter, thinking back to what Jesus said, preach repentance and remission of sins. He said, repent. That's pretty, pretty basic. Turn away from sin in your life. Turn to God. 
He said, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's what Jesus told him to preach. He said, I want you to preach repentance and remission of sins. And that remission of sins comes through baptism. Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins? If you haven't, I want to encourage you today to do that. If you have, and you've wandered back into the world, and you've let sin creep into your life, you can come back out of it. We can be an encouragement to you. All the sins that we've talked about today, every one of them can be overcome. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, one of the verses we didn't read, kind of skimmed through it, but Paul makes the point there, some of you were adulterers, and some of you were fornicators, and some of you were idolaters, and some of you were homosexuals, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified by the blood of Jesus Anybody can be a child of God if we're willing to turn away from the sin in our lives. Can we help you with that today? We're going to sing an invitation song, and if you have a need, please make it known by coming to the front as we stand and sing. Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. For more information about our church family, please visit our Bradleyville Church of Christ Facebook page. We hope to see you soon. Till then, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have a good day.